0: well please turn with me in your bibles to acts chapter 21 we're looking at a longer section verse 27 all the way through chapter 22 verse 22 and you can find it on page 931 932 there in the pew bibles have you ever wondered to yourself why is this happening to me Perhaps you've been broadsided by something very unexpected, a conflict, a hardship. Maybe you have had to face unfair criticism. Perhaps despite all of your efforts to do what is good, it seems like things keep falling apart. Or perhaps despite your best efforts to, um, to declare what you believe humbly and graciously to people that, that maybe do not know Christ, they won't hear it and they hate you and attack you for it. In those times when the unexpected occurs and you face this conflict and this hardship, this difficulty, what do you often do? I think more often than not, we tend to question God. Just God, where are you? What are you up to? Why has this happened to me? You know, woe is me, I am forlorn. Um, You know, like how could God ever be working this together for good? I, I really don't see it. Now, friends, I, I don't say that to, to minimize or make light of your hardship here in any way, but, but what I want to challenge is that in focusing on ourselves and our circumstances, so often we blind ourselves to what God is doing in and through and for us. It detours us from the mission of Christ that He has given each and every one of us. It, It leaves us unprepared to make a defense for the hope that we have within us and the truth that we believe. It hinders us from experiencing the hope and grace that God gives us even in the midst of the unexpected. Because you see, every unexpected, unfair conflict, trial, or even interruption that broadsides us is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to experience the grace of God. It's an opportunity to refine our faith. It's an opportunity for us to grow in holiness and righteousness and truth. It's an opportunity for us to express love to our neighbor, to our enemy, to whoever the Lord has put before us. It's an opportunity for us to give a ready defense for the hope that we have in Christ if only we would stay focused on His will and His ways. You see, though that, that event, that unexpected conflict that broadsides you, though you might not have expected it, it might have been a surprise to you, it does not catch God unaware. And every unexpected event that happens in our life is an opportunity for us to give a ready defense for the hope that we have within us. Our passage this morning is a description of one such event. Here you have the Apostle Paul, he's minding his own business, he's worshiping God in the temple, and the next thing you know, basically the whole city is wailing on him. They're trying to find a way to kill him. But rather than seeking his own self-preservation or justification, rather than only looking to himself and his situation and saying, woe is me, what we see Paul doing is he humbly and graciously makes a defense for Jesus. When we think about that word, defense, a ready defense. A ready defense of the gospel does not require advanced degrees. It doesn't require sharpened rhetorical skills. It doesn't require mastery of all apologetic, philosophic, or theological arguments. It doesn't require that you know everything there is to know about the Bible. No, ultimately what we're going to see this morning from our text is that a ready defense comes from knowing the will and ways of God. A ready defense comes from knowing the will and ways of God. Not just knowledge that's just up here as data in our heads, but hearts that trust God and can look beyond ourselves and our circumstances to stand firm in His purposes and His promises for us. A ready defense comes from knowing the will and ways of God. And so may it serve to ready our hearts to stand for and in Christ as we read Acts chapter 21 beginning in verse 27. It says, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some of the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he, actually car- he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the, t- into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing him them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born of Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished." The God of our fathers appointed you to know His will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from His mouth. For you will be a witness for Him to every one of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple... I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. When we find ourselves in the midst of the unexpected, whether that be conflict or misunderstanding or hostilities, or simply an unexpected opportunity to stand for Christ, a ready defense comes from knowing the will and ways of God. A ready defense doesn't require that you be some kind of master orator, only that you can look beyond yourself to recognize the opportunity in the assurance of faith that comes from the Holy Spirit so that you can stand firm in and for Christ. And this passage provides us with four essential truths regarding the will and ways of God so that we too might have a ready defense when unexpected opportunities arise. And the first is to rest in divine providence. Now, that word providence as a strange word. We don't use it all that often. Of course, you know, we use it more here at Redeemer than, than maybe at other places, but it's not a common word. It's not an everyday word. But this word is so important if we're going to understand what God teaches about himself in his word and his involvement in all of his creation, including the lives of you and me. And the Heidelberg Catechism gives us some of the best definitions out there on divine providence. And so, question number 27 of the Heidelberg Catechism says, What do you understand by the providence of God? Answer, God's providence is His almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with His hand, He still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come to us not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. That question is followed by question number 28. What does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by His providence? Answer, We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. Friends, isn't that what we see here in Paul in this passage? patience in adversity, a view to the future, firm confidence in our faithful God and Father whose love will never be separated from us. I mean, here's Paul, right? He's minding his own business. He's there at Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost as a faithful Jew, Verse 27 says that he's about to finish the seven-day process of ceremonial purification in order to leave no stumbling block, neither for the believing Jewish Christians or or Jewish non-Christians, right? And, And he's just there, and he gets spotted by some of these Jews from Asia. That's where the city of Ephesus lies in Asia. They too were there for Pentecost, And they saw Paul in the temple and they started elbowing one another. Hey, that's the guy. That's the guy that that was talking in our synagogue, you know, way back out there in our neck of the woods. This is the guy that was telling us that that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ. That that he is actually a fulfillment of, of the Old Testament law and prophets and was ushering in the kingdom of God. And do you remember when we wouldn't have what he had to say, he actually went out and he started preaching the same thing to the Gentiles. And now here he is in our temple. So they wouldn't have it. And what did they do? Well, like all reasonable self-respecting religious and law-abiding people. You know, when somebody that they hate teaches truth from their Scripture that they are in error, what do they do? Well, they start a riot. And we see that it says that they stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Now, is that true? Well, I mean, partly He was teaching everyone everywhere about the people and the law and and the temple, but he wasn't against them. They go on to say, moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place, For, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed wrongly that Paul had brought him into the temple, which of course, Paul would never have done. I mean, he's there seeking ceremonial purification in order to leave no stumbling block to the gospel. He's not about to do that. You see, at that time, the temple was separated into different sections, right? And the furthest most section from the Holy of Holies, which is where God's presence was supposed to dwell, uh, was the, the court of the Gentiles. And the court of the Gentiles had this big wall, this stone wall surrounding it with the sign etched in stone that basically says all Gentile trespassers will be shot on sight. And so there's no way that Paul, seeking ceremonial purification, would have ever put Trophimus in that kind of place, and he would not have, have made a stumbling block in that way to the gospel. That's not why he was there. And yet, we see that all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And they were seeking to kill him, and the only reason they stopped was because a Roman tribune stepped in to bring order. Now, friends, we got to stop right there and ask ourselves: you know what? If I was in Paul's shoes, what would I be? What would I be doing? What would I be thinking in that moment? I mean, he's just there. As a faithful Jew observing the customs handed down to Moses. He's not doing anything wrong. And and though he was freed from the law, he voluntarily had surrendered his rights for the sake of the body of Christ. Right? He's there to serve the church. And what does it get him? The whole city is trying to kill him. Now in that moment, what would you be thinking? If we're taking an honest look at ourselves, what would you be thinking? God, help me. Get me out of this mess. I'm only trying to serve you, Lord. Just, I mean, throw me a bone here. And that's often our focus or mentality when unexpected hardships come our way. Because we're focused on ourselves. Focused on our circumstances. We can't possibly think that God might have a greater purpose in mind through that hardship, through that conflict, through that unexpected event. Now, God did spare Paul, and God did it in the most unexpected way. You see, the temple in Jerusalem was a hotspot for disruption and disorder, and so the Romans had built a fortress basically right next to it with a cohort of 600 soldiers that could be dispatched immediately in order to squash or to quelch any uprising, and that's exactly what happened here. Right as soon as the commotion began word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion and he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them Now this guy is not concerned about protecting Paul that's not his concern at all I mean he arrests him right chains him to two different guards right and tried to figure out who he was and what he had done But since he couldn't learn the facts because of the confusion and the conflicting testimonies of of this major uproar, he ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks. And even when they got to the steps, the crowd was so violent that actually to pick Paul up and carry him. And in a very familiar setting to what had taken place in that very same city almost 30 years earlier, just like with Christ, they said, away with him. Now, friends, this is no accident. This is not just circumstantial evidence. Luke, who is the author, not just of the Gospel of Luke, but the book of Acts as well, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sought to make it abundantly clear to us that all of this has happened according to the providence of God. All of this was unfolding according to plan. You think about Jesus, betrayal, his death and resurrection. The book of Acts has some of the, the clearest and strongest language with regards to God's sovereignty over that. Just for example, Acts chapter 2 verses 22 through 24. It says, "Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus" Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And Peter goes on in that sermon and says, this is actually in fulfillment of Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. Another example, Acts chapter 4, verses 24 through 28. It says, when the church heard that Peter and John had been released by the Jerusalem council, they lifted up their voice together to God and prayed, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, this is a thousand years earlier, by the Spirit, said by the Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. We consider the, the thesis statement for the book of Acts, right? Uh, Acts chapter one, verse eight, right? We see the entire book of Acts unfold according to this thesis statement. In Acts 1.8, what you have there is Jesus, before he ascended into the heavens, said to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And that is exactly how the book of Acts unfolds. First seven chapters, chapters one through seven are there in Jerusalem until this rise of persecution given by order of the council at the hands of Paul himself. The gospel is then taken to all Judea and Samaria in chapters eight through twelve. And then in a superb twist of irony, in order to display the wisdom and the power and the grace of God, God saves Paul and appoints him as his apostle to the Gentiles. And so chapters 13 through 21 cover Paul's three missionary journeys as he takes the gospel all the way as far as the region of Achaia. And it's from that point where we pick up right here to the end of the book Though a drier section regarding Paul's imprisonment and defense and his appeal to Caesar, Paul will make his way to Rome in chains, effectively taking the gospel to the very ends of the earth, and the Romans are the ones who are going to get him there. And so, when you think about that effectively, what God said is like, look, you're going to be imprisoned, you're going to go to Rome, and the Romans are going to pay for it. Right? It's amazing, right? I mean, think about Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. He, he was told by Ananias that Jesus had told Ananias to go and say, Go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And the Holy Spirit had made it clear to him in Acts 19 and 20 that he was to go to Jerusalem and that imprisonment and afflictions awaited him. And even here, when we think about the details, every single part of Paul's life leading up to this point, every part of his background served to prepare Paul for this moment right here. I mean, think about it. He's a Roman citizen by birth who speaks Greek, which gives him the ability to speak to the Roman tribune who then gives him permission to address the crowd. Now, think about that for a minute, right? After this man first assumed that he's an Egyptian revolutionary. How does that happen? I mean, just what peace officer is going to do that when the guy they know clearly is in some way the cause of this commotion? whether he was the primary agitator or not. I mean, if Caleb or if Caleb's uh, chief of police did this, I'm pretty sure that they would be out of a job or at least they'd be on modified assignment, right? You don't give the guy that you're arresting opportunity to address the crowd that they have just infuriated, right? I I mean, I know that and I haven't even gone through the basic training, but uh, I got that part figured out. But in chapter 22, Paul speaks to the mob in the Hebrew language. And then he gives them his street cred, right? Verses three through five. I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but I was brought up here in this city. I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, the grandson of the great Rabbi Hillel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. I was a Pharisee, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. And I persecuted the way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. For from them I received letters to the brothers and journeyed toward Damascus to take also those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So you think you got, you got a beef, right? And that you're zealous for the law. I mean, just consider, consider what my life was like. You see, in God's providence, Paul could identify with this crowd in every single way. Everything in Paul's life readied him for that moment to give a defense for the gospel. You see, this was no accident. God had placed Paul there for such a time as this. And friends, the same is true for us. You're not here By accident. As tough and as frustrating or as difficult as you might say that our culture is today, it's not a reason to lament, but a reason to consider what the Lord would have you to do. You see, we might not be apostles facing death at the hands of an angry mob, but God doesn't pick and choose just a special few that He is going to sovereignly oversee. No, when when you think about all of the variables, all of the millions of situations and circumstances and decisions that would have had to transpire to simply result in the betrayal, death, and resurrection of Jesus, let alone when you think about the ministry of the apostles or the expanse of the church to the uttermost ends of the earth throughout the Book of Acts, then we realize that God's providence is not limited or select to specific times and specific instances and specific people, but it is comprehensive. And that means that God has made you and sustained you and given you all of the experiences and the education and the situations in your life and has placed you in each and every sequential and seemingly mundane and insignificant moment of your life for such a time as this in order to be able to stand in and for Christ. It's no accident that difficulty that you're facing at work, that chaos that seems to be always ensuing in your house, the conflict that you're experiencing with your spouse, That unexpected knock at the door, the challenging conversations that you keep having with the same difficult person over and over and over again, if we could just look beyond ourselves, if we could look beyond our feelings, beyond our wants, beyond our plans, beyond our thoughts, beyond our desires, what we would see is that like Paul, this was an opportunity for us to stand in and for Christ. And friends, if you keep in mind the opportunities that we have to commend the gospel of Jesus, whether that be to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ or to engage with somebody who does not know him, it rarely fits within our convenient blocks of time on our daily planners. I don't know that I've ever had an opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone that it fit right in my schedule. And I don't think you could say the same thing either. But all of them happen according to the providence of God for our good and for his glory. So we've got to get that. We've got to look beyond ourselves to see what God is planning, what He is purposing, what He is intending with each and every moment of our lives. And so the first essential truth that we have to hold to in order to provide a ready defense for the gospel is that both in season and out of season is this constant mindfulness of divine providence. And the second is a divine calling. We see there in chapter 22, verse 1, Paul addresses his persecutors with respect according to his relation to them as a fellow Jew. He says, Brothers and fathers, Hear the defense that I now make before you. And that word defense is apologia. That's where we get our word apologetics from. But Paul's not caught up right here in giving some lengthy philosophical arguments or natural proofs for God. His apology is focused on the divine call of God, both for salvation and for mission. All right? After giving a description of his Jewish heritage, his education, his zeal for the law that led him to persecute Christians in verses three through five there, he has this mentality of like, "I'm just like you. I'm no better. In fact, I'm probably worse." And his ready defense turns toward his conversion. He said, "As I was on my way and drew near to the Damascus about the noon, At about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. He's like, look, I wasn't wasn't looking for this. This is not of me. I was clearly going to persecute Christians. And and this is what happened to me. I fell to the ground and I heard a voice to me saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, I, I thought that I was serving God by rounding up these heretics called Christians. But it turns out that I was actually opposing the Christ. And he answered, and I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, I know that this sounds crazy and and I'm with you here, but I have witnesses because those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? I mean, what else was I going to say? I just got knocked off my horse with this vision from heaven, and it was of Jesus, And he said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came to Damascus. I know that this sounds crazy. I mean, who else has had a vision like this that struck them blind? I mean, Moses, yeah, he saw some amazing things. Isaiah, Ezekiel, sure, they saw amazing things, but, but never like this. And so I know that, that my conversion experience is unique, but, but I have another witness. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there. You see, he's got street cred too. He came to me and standing by me, he said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and I saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And so I did. I came to realize that that Jesus truly is that long-awaited Messiah that we had read about and taught about every time we gathered in the synagogue for all those years. That what those Christians, those so many Christians that I had persecuted, that what they said to me was true. That Jesus, this one and only Son of God, lived a perfect life. A life that I, even as a strict Pharisee, could never live. And he died on a cross for sin and he rose again. So that we might be restored to him. So that we might be with God forever in his place under his rule and blessing. So I repented of my sin, of my rejection of him, and I called upon his name. I trusted in him alone for the forgiveness of my sin and the hope of eternal life, and I was baptized as a public profession of my new identity in him. Friends, that is our ready defense. The fact that we were dead, enslaved, and condemned in our sin, God, because of his great mercy, because of the love with which he loved even us, that even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. He raised us with him and he seated us with him in his heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that the coming ages, God might reveal the measurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Friends, that. Is our defense. That Is what makes us ready. That's what gives us the ability to speak the lavish grace of God toward us in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is our defense. This is how we stand in the midst of conflict and criticism and persecution, not because of our own goodness or because of our religious zeal, but by the blood of Christ who washes away our sin. That is our hope and that is our peace, even when the world is trying to kill us wailing on us unjustly. That is our defense, our hope and our grace that God in salvation, that is what sustained Paul and that is what will sustain us. You've been given what you need. And friends, it's that same hope, it's the same peace, the same grace in our salvation that divinely calls us to mission. Paul's call to apostleship was evident even at his conversion. Verse 10, the resurrected Lord Jesus tells Paul to rise and to go to Damascus and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Verses 14 and 15, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Verse 21, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. But friends, he's not the only one. Think about all of the Christians that preached the gospel to him as he bound them and delivered them over to prison. Think about Ananias. I mean, the only thing we know about Ananias was he was the guy that, that went to Paul while Paul was still blind. Nothing else. You might, you might not be an apostle Paul. You might be like an Ananias, right? Ananias was called by Jesus to go and to minister to Paul while for all he knew, Paul was still breathing threats and murder against the church. Think about Stephen, Christ's witness down in verse 20. Probably the very first person to preach the gospel to Paul. But friends, they were not the only ones who were appointed for this mission because throughout the entire book of Acts, what we see is that Those who have been called by Christ have been called to live for Christ. That those who have received the testimony of Jesus become witnesses for Jesus. That those who become disciples of Christ become disciple makers for Christ. And part of the ready defense of our divine calling is not simply for us to receive the gift of salvation that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, but to learn Christ in such a way that we can then commend Him to others. Part of of the reason why we are not ready. One of the biggest reasons why we're not able to give a defense is because we want to receive just enough of Jesus to feel confident, to say that I'm okay. But again, we're not looking beyond ourselves to realize God's purpose is for us to be able to share what we have learned. So we must set our eyes upward. The call of Christ for salvation and mission. It's not to make us the next Billy Graham or the next Apostle Paul. But to be able to give a defense for the hope of salvation that is within us. Being able to humbly and repentantly but assuredly stand in Christ and for Christ. And so... ready defense comes from knowing the will and ways of God in His divine providence, His divine call, third, His divine message. Now, don't worry. Each of these points is getting substantially shorter as we go along. But in addition to recognizing divine providence and the divine call to salvation and mission, we proclaim a divine message. The message that we proclaim has the power to transform lives. I mean, Paul tells this crowd of zealous Jews, "Look, your own high priest and the council of your elders can testify to the fact that I was zealous. I had received letters from them to go and to persecute the Jews. And look at me now, right? Those guys who were on the road with me, they can testify to the fact that they too saw a great light. Ananias, he can bear witness to my conversion." Down there in verses 17 through 20, Paul's referring back some 20 years earlier when he had first returned to Jerusalem from Damascus three years after his conversion. And at that time, everybody knew who he was and that he now was different. He now proclaimed Christ and they tried to kill him then. And so the church sent him off to Tarsus, Christ sent him to the Gentiles. But even more than the clear power of the gospel that had transformed Paul's life was the heavenly authority of the message that he proclaimed. I mean, look here at what he tells them. He says, look, Paul had seen a vision and heard a voice from heaven and witnesses could confirm it. So you know what that means? That puts Paul right in line with the Old Testament prophets who had received God's word. He goes on, he says, two times he told them that he was appointed by God to bear witness to Christ, that this was a divine appointment that that has caused me to proclaim this to you. Ananias declared to him the words of Jesus in verse 14 that the God of our fathers appointed him, one, to know God's will, two, to see the righteous one, that is the Christ, and three, to hear a voice from his mouth. And that Old Testament phrase, the righteous one, It's used in reference to God in Proverbs 21 and Isaiah 24. It's used in reference to the son of David in Jeremiah 23 and 33 and to the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And so if you put it all together, what you have there is Jesus Christ, the son of God, fully God and fully man who died and rose again to deliver us from all our sin and to reign as God's forever king according to the scriptures. And seeing a vision while praying in the temple down there in verses 17 through 20, that marks Paul out as a faithful prophet, just like Samuel or Isaiah or Jeremiah. And so, a faithful Jew would not only have to acknowledge the divine power of his conversion, but the divine authority of his message. And it says that up to this word, they listened to him. But, of course, that wouldn't last. Friends, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the purposes and promises of God in the law and prophets. And if you read through Paul's letters, the defense of his ministry boils down to this. Look, this message that I have received is from God according to the Scriptures. Right, that's really what he says over and over again, that's Paul's ready defense for his ministry. What I have received from the Lord, this I declare to you in accordance with God's word. Well, friends, we have been given the same divine message, the same wisdom, the same power, same authority, We don't need to try to convince people with winsome and clever arguments. We're not declaring our own ideas or opinions here. We're not presenting a new and fresh word in creative and entertaining ways. We don't have to give profound logical arguments or or deep theological diatribes. We are simply to proclaim the truth because the wisdom, the power, and the authority are in the message. As Paul said earlier when he wrote first Corinthians chapter two, says I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear, and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And yet, among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. No, we impart a, a secret and a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So you get that? I mean, that's the message that we proclaim. We proclaim not based upon the wisdom of men. All of the books that you read make defenses and fine-sounding arguments. But we have been given this wisdom that has been decreed before the ages for our glory. You're not going to add to that. And so what that means is the pressure is off. Right? Right? Pressure is off because it's not your power. It's not your wisdom. It's not your authority that is going to convince anybody. It is the wisdom and the power and the authority of God. And as long as we know the message, perhaps even when we find ourselves in the midst of weakness and fear and much trembling, we still have all the readiness we need. But... Just because we are trusting in divine providence and we know that we have been divinely called both to salvation and to mission, and we've been given this divine message, not everyone is going to receive it, which is why, fourth, we have to rest in God's divine purpose. You see, the glory of God is not only revealed in the salvation of sinners, but also in God's righteous judgment upon the wicked. Don't be fooled by the fact that these zealous Jews were worshiping God in the temple. They, they might have honored him with their lips, but their hearts were still far from them. And, and we know this for sure because their response to Paul's declaration of this divine message led them to want to kill him. You see, up to this point, they were listening intently to Paul's defense until we get there to verse 21. And Christ said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened, and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. You see, their reception of God's word was conditioned upon their longings and their expectations. When you go and you preach the gospel to anybody, you're going to deal with the same thing. They're going to have longings and expectations. It might not be like this, right? Because though there were numerous Old Testament passages that pointed to God's inclusion of the Gentiles, these Jews refused to accept that the promises of God, both for the forgiveness of sin and adoption as sons, would be extended to the Gentiles in the same way that it would have been given to the Jews, And so just as they had done with Jesus almost 30 years earlier, they said, away with such a fellow from the earth for he should not be allowed to live. And so when we go and we proclaim the gospel to other people, there will be those with longings and expectations who will say the same thing. Away with such a person. They don't deserve to live. And they will do it for seemingly most insignificant and silly things. But this rejection of the gospel, you have to understand, was according to plan. See, Paul actually wrote that this has been and would be the case just a few months earlier while he was in Corinth in Acts chapter 20, verse 3. And you could read all about it in Romans chapters 9 through 11. Now, we don't have time to look at that in detail, but let me give you just a couple of snippets to put this in perspective. Romans 9. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Saying there, look, God's glory is revealed in salvation through judgment, not just for the Gentiles, but also for the Jews. But Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 10, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, and that is his fellow Jews, is that they may be saved. And I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For, the righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You're going to encounter people who seem to be very religious. But that doesn't mean a whole lot because they were condemned because rather than recognizing that Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, Jew or Gentile, they're still trying to establish their own. They're still trying to save themselves. So we've got to recognize that even among those who seem very religious, there's a danger. And yet, he would continue in Romans chapter 11 as regards to the gospel, they, these unrepentant Jews who refuse the Christ, are enemies of God for your sake. But as regard to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy upon all. Oh, the depths and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And what God would use to reveal his glory in salvation through judgment in the Jews' rejection of Paul in his message Would be the means that God used to send Paul with the gospel to Rome to the very ends of the earth. You see, God has a purpose even in the rejection of the gospel. Friends, we don't convert anybody, we don't change a sinner's heart. We cannot declare this divine message in such a way that we can take credit for saving anyone. It is the work of God and God alone. And even their rejection of it is a part of his purpose. His purpose for us is to be faithful to that message, both to live and to proclaim it, to give a ready defense for the hope that we have within us so, the next time you find yourself blindsided by unexpected conflict, just remember that you are not giving a defense in order to justify yourself. You're not giving a defense in order to change their hearts and minds by your own wisdom and power. You are not there to fix them. You are there to rest in and to point them to Jesus. To stand in and for Christ in this and every moment in which our loving Father has ordained. Because giving a ready defense requires knowing the will and ways of God. And so let's pray.